we are hard-pressed on every side. But because of the grace of the cross, we are not struck down. We are upheld by your hand. You walk with us. Our prayer, Lord, for our province and for our country as we see all these disasters and catastrophes unfolding. Although it can be attributed to something like climate change, we know, Lord, that all that is happening in this world is a result of our sin. And as your Son teaches us in Matthew 24, these disasters, these catastrophes, wars and rumors of wars and plagues and floods and fires, these are all but the beginning of birth pains. These are all the beginning of contractions. They will come with greater pain and greater frequency until that great and terrible day of the Lord. Father, help this country to know that you are the Holy One of Israel, worthy of worship, worthy of praise, and help them to bow before the throne, before it is too late. God, do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 18, just verse 18. As you're turning there, I want to share with you a passage not for Romans 18. This is a little bit of a thicker book than your average Bible. This is written by John Frame, a a theologian and a philosopher. This is his systematic theology that he's written. And when he comes to the section on hell and eternal punishment, he begins this way. Now I must, he says, with some reluctance, look at the other side of the eternal state. The eternal punishment of the wicked, those who are outside of Christ. He goes on, he says, I am reluctant because it is always an unpleasant thing to think about or to talk about when we talk about eternal punishment. If I were free, he says, if I were free to invent my own religion, I can assure you that eternal punishment would not be part of it. But I must talk about it now because I am not free to invent my own religion and I must teach only what the Bible teaches. And the Bible certainly has a lot to say about eternal punishment. You read that quote from John Frame, and he's an evangelical Christian. He believes in the cross. He believes in the gospel. And yet, even as he's elaborating on these things in his systematic theology, he acknowledges that they're uncomfortable to talk about. Nevertheless, the goal of us as Christians is to recognize that everything that God does is good. As it says in the book of Deuteronomy, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will worship the Lord. Ascribe greatness to God. Moses is saying, we got to worship God. And he says, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. Is hell a work of God? Indeed it is. Therefore, To be honest with ourselves, if we find, as John Frame does, if we find within ourselves discomfort, if we find within ourselves this reluctance to talk about hell, it is because we are not hearing it from the Father's Word in terms of what hell is there for. And so this morning, my task isn't so much to describe hell to you as it is something far, far more difficult, which can only be accomplished with the help of the Spirit. My task this morning is to help you to see that God's wrath is indeed a good thing. And although we should always be uncomfortable with the topic for fear ourselves of one day going to hell, we should see it for what it is. God's judgment on a world that has no excuse in denying Him. In the weeks to come, we'll be working our way through Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following But today, I just want to introduce the topic to you, looking at one verse in particular, verse 18. And so Paul says to the church of Rome, having introduced himself and having introduced the great theme of this letter of Romans, the the theme of the gospel, the apostle Paul says now in verse 18, For 
the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. As he works his way throughout the rest of the chapter, he's going to say everybody knows, in fact, that there is a God. It is undeniable that he's out there. He can be clearly understood from everything that we see. And then Paul will go on to say how it is that people are capable of denying God. They are capable of denying God by suppressing him through continuous unrighteousness. And he will criticize elements of this unrighteousness. And towards the end of the chapter, he will focus in on something which is quite pervasive in our culture today. The sin of sexual immorality. Before we get to all of that, let us begin in verse 18. Paul says, for the wrath of God is Revealed. When we say wrath, what exactly is it that we mean by this word? What does this word connote? Oftentimes when we think of God, we think of him as this impartial judge who is keeping accounts. He is tracking all the good things we do, and he's tracking all the bad things we do. And of course, our good things, as it says in the prophet Isaiah, are nothing more than filthy rags in his eyes. And of course, he's looking at the bad as well. And when we think of hell, we think of it as a place where this righteous and impartial judge sentences those who have broken his holy law. And I want you to understand that's entirely accurate. But when we describe hell, it is not merely a place where the wicked are consigned as a result of an impartial judge. It's important for us to realize that God is pouring out his anger and his vengeance upon those who are there. Whereas we might think of God as an impartial judge at the bench determining our sentence, it would be wrong for us to conclude that that's where it ends. God is impartial at the bench, and he is incredibly passionate in the place where justice is executed. He may be impartial in assigning the sentence, but there is nothing impartial or dispassionate about the way he prosecutes his judgment. That's what we need to see this morning. That's what's really at heart behind this word wrath. We're not really talking about justice. We're not really talking about what is equal or what is fair. We're talking about a word that conveys great emotion. Great emotion. Great passion. This is not someone who's just sort of having to reluctantly go through the motions because it's his duty. It's his job. Indeed, God will prosecute justice because of how righteous he is. But he does so out of an emotional anger. In fact, this word wrath is the most powerful of all the words that we would encounter in Scripture talking about God's anger. In that passage that I just read to you, Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is calling upon the people of Israel to worship God. Worship Him. Ascribe to His name the greatness that is His due. Praise God. In that same chapter, in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, Moses goes on to say that when God is angry, his anger kindles a fire that burns to the depths of Sheol. And his wrath is so intense and so fierce that it burns down the mountains. The psalmist in Psalm 90, you've heard this psalm before. In fact, it's quoted around here quite often out of context. We will say to each other, you know, we need to Remember that our days are, are finite, that we only have so much time on this earth. So we say, you know, God, teach us to number our days so that we will have a heart of wisdom. You, you've heard that quote from Psalm 90. I'm sure you have. We, we all repeat it often. But in context, listen to the whole psalm. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, perhaps 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? Who looks to your wrath according to the fear of you? So, Psalm says in the very next verse, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. As we think about God and his wrath, as we have said previously, 
God is an impartial and absolutely fair judge at the bench. When it comes to assigning penalties for our sins, when it comes to assigning us what we deserve for the wrongs that we've committed. But it is a mistake to think of God as dispassionate or not emotionally involved in tormenting individuals in hell in his wrath. The reason why this makes us so uncomfortable is because we don't really have any picture of this kind of vengeance on earth. Indeed, the scripture says, God himself makes it clear later in the book of Romans, leave vengeance to him. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. In the book of James, we're told that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so as we cast about in our world looking for apt comparisons, we always fail. A number of years ago, uh, I was watching this movie with Mel Gibson called Patriot Day. Being Canadians, perhaps you don't really appreciate it. It's about the American Revolution. But nonetheless, in this particular movie, we encounter this character played by Mel Gibson by the name of Benjamin Martin. He's a widower with uh, seven children. He is, as we encounter him in this particular movie, a war hero for the French and Indian War. He is arguing against doing anything within the colonies that would provoke Britain to war. Knowing from personal experience how evil and how how incredibly barbaric war can be, he votes against a tax levy supporting a new continental army because, again, he doesn't want to provoke the British. In spite of his best efforts, war breaks out, and his eldest son goes to serve in the Continental Army. Though Benjamin Martin has tried repeatedly to keep his family out of the war, eventually the conflict turns hot, and a great battle ensues on the outer skirts of his own property. British soldiers, in fact, come to his home, where his oldest son has sought refuge, having been injured. They come looking for this war criminal. In the process of taking his eldest son prisoner, they inadvertently kill one of his other sons. And we encounter a father who loves his child with such incredible passion. We see him there in his home, cradling his child, grieving over his death, while these soldiers callously march away. And in a fit of rage, Martin flies to this trunk, throws it open, and out comes this hatchet for which he was known to fight during his previous time in the French Indian War. Taking his two other sons, he chases down this British troop that is marching his oldest away. And in a particularly sober scene, he begins to ambush this group of soldiers, striking them down one by one. As the last soldier is attempting to flee, he drops his rifle and he runs screaming in terror away from Benjamin Martin. But he is not able to outrun Benjamin Martin, who hunts him down and strikes him to the ground. Martin then mounts the soldier's body and begins to rain down blows upon him. Even after the soldier is dead, he continues to attack the corpse of this soldier. Later in the evening, after the family has returned home, his two sons look at him, one with admiration and the other one, with abject horror at what he has observed his father participate in. Now this analogy shows a father that is human and therefore prone to miscalculations and judgment, prone to sinful flights of anger, who himself is a sinner and therefore is unqualified to do justice. We can say many things about this account, but do you know what we have to say? This man loved his son. This man was passionate in the emotion that he had for his child. And when he saw his child struck down in what can only be understood as a war crime, he was moved to to prosecute justice. And all these attempts that scholars and theologians make to diminish hell, to suggest that they're embarrassed about how cruel hell sounds... In all of this, one of the things that we're losing sight of is in diminishing hell, we naturally either diminish 
the beauty and the wonder of who we are as people created in the image of God, or in diminishing hell, if we're going to uphold the beauty and the wonder of who we are created in the image of God, we then must naturally downplay or diminish the depths of God's passion for his people and the love that he has. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, God is love. And I believe that. God is love. But if that's true, and it is, if God is love, since God is love, then it must also be true that God is a God of justice and that God is a God of vengeance. If you love someone, and if it is in your power to protect them and to keep them safe, to the degree that something threatens your beloved, to that same degree, you are utterly opposed to that which threatens them. If you love your wife, but you are indifferent to the man that breaks into your home seeking to rape your wife, it calls into question the nature of your relationship. It calls into question the definition of your word love. You don't even know what love is if you are utterly indifferent to your wife and the threat that is present to her in an intruder entering into your home. Naturally, any man who cares for his wife or his family naturally would be opposed, violently so, to anyone breaking into their home threatening harm. We say, like John Frame, that we're uncomfortable with certain doctrines, but let's just pause for a second and remind ourselves why it is that God has hell in the first place. Why it is that God has wrath in the first place. Now, I think the scriptures are clear. It's because he loves you. He loves you. The Apostle Paul makes this statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And he says, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith, placing their faith that is depending upon God. And then he makes this interesting statement, verse 18. For, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. As we consider God as a vengeful warrior coming to do justice for his beloved, rather than seeing him as a dispassionate, sort of neutral, emotionless judge sitting at the bench, we need to understand this word wrath conveys emotion, which is better captured in the picture of a man coming with a tomahawk, and hell is to pay for his anger. That's what this word wrath means. You say, okay, pastor... But why? Why do I deserve all of that rage and all of that vengeance? I'm not Hitler. I didn't commit any great crimes. Sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm not necessarily a bad man. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is revealed. He doesn't say it's revealed against people like Hitler. He doesn't say the wrath of God is revealed against people who have... Uh, killed a few people in their time. He doesn't even say the wrath of God is revealed against people who have had a parking ticket or two. He doesn't say any of those things. Notice what he says here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. See, in our attempts to compare ourselves to other men whom we consider to be really, really wicked, it is really easy for us to justify ourselves. Wouldn't that be great if Hitler was the standard by which we had to measure up if we wanted to go to heaven? No, it wouldn't be great. We're tempted to say, yeah, that'd make it easy. But then this world would still be horrible. There's a lot of crime and a lot of sin that happens in this world that does not sink to the depths of depravity of Hitler, yet is equally dangerous on smaller scales. But the standard of comparison isn't Hitler. The standard of comparison is Jesus. The statement that Paul makes, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. He's been talking about the gospel. He's been talking about the Son of God who comes to die on the cross for our sins. And then, having said that, he says, for. That means verse 18 connects back to what he's been saying previously, which means that in the coming of the Son, we also see in what Jesus accomplishes this terrible, terrible judgment, this wrath that comes through the revealing of the Son. It is presently revealed. It is connected to the gospel. Jesus comes. 
If we are going to diminish sin, if we're going to downplay the seriousness of our sin, you know what else we're downplaying? The need for the Son of God to die a horrific death on a cross. Paul says that the Son of God has come, that the gospel is revealed, he's not ashamed of it, and then he also says, for the wrath of God is now revealed. And it's revealed not just against ordinary bad guys, it's revealed against all bad guys. And here's the standard of badness by which we have to evaluate ourselves. It's not whether or not we've murdered someone. It's not whether or not we've murdered 10,000 someones. The standard is whether or not we've been righteous. The standard is whether or not we've been godly. You know, in, in the Old Testament, we have the Mosaic Law. And when we consider the Mosaic Law alongside other uh, law codes from this time, whether we're talking about the Code of Hammurabi, or there's also law codes mentioned in the Enuma Elish, whether we're looking at all these ancient Near Eastern texts, when we come to the Mosaic Law, we come to a, a text that is revealed from God that is way better than anything man has come up with by comparison. And of course, you're all familiar with it, the famous Lex Talionis from Exodus chapter 21. He says, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's how the law is introduced, and it's this principle of harm. And all of our laws today are based upon this understanding of harm. If we've harmed someone, if we've done wrong to someone, then we are guilty under the law. And within the law, there's this prescription that if we've done anything wrong, we now owe a debt. This person didn't deserve the wrong that they suffered. We inflicted the wrong, and now as a result of that, we have to make up for it. We have to pay for it. There has to be recompense. Uh, for example, and I've used this illustration before, suppose... One of you were to come to my house and would want to borrow my truck. So I say, sure, I give you my keys, you jump in the truck, for whatever reason, you put it in drive, you don't put it in reverse, you put it in drive, you hit the gas, and you floor it straight into my fence and destroy my fence. Now the fence is damaged, the fence is destroyed. We can put a value on that, we can say, you did wrong, you were careless or negligent in the way that you used my vehicle, and as a result, I sustained injury, I lost my fence, now you owe me money to pay for it. And so we see this actually spelled out in body parts in the Mosaic Law. If there is harm, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so forth and so on. And within that same passage in Exodus, there are a number of case studies that are, that are spelled out by Moses to help us to see all the different situations in which this might apply. For example, in verses 33 to 36, when a man opens a pit, you think that's unusual, why would a man take a pit? They didn't have plumbing like we have today. They had to have somewhere to put all their refuse. And so, the scripture touches on this. When a man digs a pit, and he doesn't cover it, if an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall be made liable and shall have to pay restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. Or when one man's ox butts another man's ox, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to goring in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, and he knowingly let it out and it gored, then he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Over and over and over again, there is this understanding that for every harm that is done, there is to be restitution. And what we find in the Mosaic Law, unlike in the Code of Hammurabi or these other ancient Near Eastern texts, is that there is this degree of proportionality. To the degree that you've hurt someone, to that degree and no further, do you pay back what you've harmed? Sounds incredibly fair, but where it gets really tricky is in other situations in which it's very difficult to calculate economic harm. For example, how are we to do justice for individuals who are in those situations where the harm doesn't ever seem to go away, and where it goes far beyond economics? For example, how are we to do justice for a child that suffers through a divorce, and grows up in a home that is not stable, and is not secure, and has mom and dad constantly fighting, in which this child is being shuttled back and forth from one home to the next. 
Now, clearly, this child is suffering an injustice. But how would we repay that child? What is the price owing for a child that ought to have known loving parents and a stable home? What is the value of having an adult within our society who is not scarred emotionally by having suffered through those tragedies? You see, in order to actually give a meaningful repayment for those types of damages, we would have to be able to calculate the value of what a child would be having been raised in a proper home. Such things are very, very difficult to calculate. And this situation applies all across the board. For example, take the case of murder. If you murder a father or a mother, well, what would that man or that woman have provided to their family over the course of their lifetime? Even if we can come to a calculation of economic cost for that person, we all seem to shudder at the notion that a life could be reduced down to something as simple as a dollar amount, even if it's millions upon millions of dollars. Because at the end of the day, we're talking about Christmas celebrations, we're talking about birthdays, we're talking about loved ones that are meant to be with us, that we're meant to enjoy and have a relationship with. And what's the real value on joy and happiness which I intended to share with this person, which I no longer am able to share? What dollar amount would we put on that that is proportionate? Indeed, as the scriptures consider what is proportionate, the prescription is made that if a man kills another man, if a man murders another man, then that man himself should be executed. Why would God assign such a value? Why would God give such a penalty? You see, in all of this conversation that we're having now in the Mosaic Law about the value of another person, do you know who we're overlooking in this whole equation? We're overlooking God. Sure, there's harm that is done to another individual when we sin against them, but what is the harm that is done to God? You see, we've never, ever been able from this earthly vantage point to adequately calculate the injury that has been sustained by an infinite being. We ourselves clearly not infinite. But then look closely at him. He's created in the image of God. He's created to have a relationship with God. Indeed, if we are to think about a man who has been struck down in cold-blooded murder, we need to think about who it is that we owe justice for. So considering a man, a man is rational. He's capable of complex thought, volition, and judgment. He can weigh ideas, and he's capable of undertaking certain complex investigations into himself, into who he is and his world. His mind, indeed, is a veritable universe unto itself, the limits of which he has not yet fully probed, plumbed, or understood. But also, when we consider a man created in the image of God, we understand that this is a man who is emotional. Man is moved by certain desires and impulses. And all these desires and impulses are relational in nature. We are meant to have friends and family. Of course, these are all impacted in the loss of this individual's life. But man is capable of caring for people that he has never met. He's capable of being moved to tears through music or literature. And he is capable of singing and speaking about love. Indeed, Augustine marveled, that great theologian of old, marveled that man is himself a great deep ocean whose very hairs you can count, O Lord, but not one hair of his falls to the ground apart without you noticing. And yet the hairs of his head are more easily counted and are more easily numbered than are the emotions and the movements of his heart, which you also see, O Lord. We tend to focus on, okay, if a man loses a hair, we owe him a hair. But think about the emotions of that man's heart and what God is looking upon when he looks upon the invisible and unseen. Man is moral. He has a conscience. He is both capable and culpable when he comes to actions that are good or evil. There is a moral fiber within him. And there is great moral weight to his every action, what he does. There is a sense within him of what he ought to do, 
And no matter how hard he may try, he can never quite shake it off or get rid of it. He knows that there are certain obligations that he owes, and they remain, whether he wants to ignore them or not. The laws of nature bear witness to the fact that he has a soul. And this is a truth of heavenly origin and divine obligation. This man, whom we would treat so callously and indifferently, is a spiritual being. He is spiritual. He's capable of communicating and having fellowship within an invisible world beyond the physical and material universe. He was created to walk with God and to enter God into God's most holy place. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says that eternity has been put on his heart. And though he is often told by dictators and Darwinians that there is no God, he cannot erase the stubborn sense of this spiritual capacity within his own soul. He knows there is a God. His soul and his spirit, they all bear witness deep inside of him. And no matter how hard he tries to convince himself otherwise, he knows there's a God. Man is immortal. Yes, we can kill his physical body, and although his soul has a beginning, it has no end. Man may die, but he never ceases to be. His death conceals an eternal existence of either bliss within the realm of heaven, or a torment within the prison of hell. He is like his creator in that his soul is imperishable, and his years will never end forever ever. Louis Burkhoff writes that in distinction from the brute, man possesses a life that transcends time and already contains within itself the pledge of eternity. So how do you pay back that? How do you make up for wronging that? You know, oftentimes when we're on road trips, I generally just zone out. Guys, you can relate. I'm sure. We're driving. The kids are screaming in the backseat. You've got like eight hours to go until you're there. You've been driving for like five minutes and already your kids are asking, when are we going to be there? When are you going to be there? And I just sort of, oh, I just don't zone it all out. Just kind of get in my, my place. I'm driving. I have, I'm deaf out of one ear, so my good ear is towards the window, so I don't hear road traffic, so it's a little bit easier for me. Very often, my wife will nudge me, and I'll come to myself and realize that people are freaking out in the backseat and some catastrophes are unfolding. She'll, she'll call upon me to intercede or to do something, and, and of course, it's usually I have to pull over and we have to sort something out. We get back in the car, we buckle up and get situated, get ready to hit the road for round number two. And my wife will say to me, what were you thinking? Like, what was, not, not in a condemning way, sometimes it's condemning. <laughs> but not necessarily in a condemning way. She says, what was going through your mind? How were you able to zone out all of that stuff that was going on in the back seat? Where were you? What were you feeling or thinking in that moment? And there's this, this moment of, of self-discovery for me where I really had no idea what I was thinking about. <laughs> it's like in that Lego movie. My mind was prodigiously empty. You know, I, I had just achieved a sort of zen state where nothing was actually happening. That's what I jokingly tell her. I don't recall thinking anything. I don't recall feeling anything. I wasn't like over there in the driver's seat like having this intense spiritual moment of great passion where I'm talking to the Lord. I'm just, you know, checking road signs. But it's true, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, something was happening. Something was happening. We have a soul, we have a spirit. There was something happening inside of us. We may have been oblivious to it, indeed we often are, then. Sometimes I wonder if, from the spiritual composition of a person's soul, if women are not more attuned to those sorts of things than men are. But I know, whether I'm aware of it or not, there are motions happening within my heart, subtle, perhaps even completely imperceptible to myself, but not imperceptible to God. He sees those emotions, though I don't. 
those thoughts which pass through my head rather quickly and maybe even imperceptibly, they're still there. I'm still thinking thoughts. I'm not completely brain dead. <laughs> That's what I tell my wife. Not I think there was a thought happening. I'm sure there was, but I don't know what it was. Whether I can see it or not, you know who does see it? God. You see, in all of our discussions around men and the payment that we have to pay in terms of when we hurt a man, do you know who we often overlook in this whole equation? And especially when we start to talk about the propriety of hell, whether it's right for God to send someone to hell, whether it's right for God to have wrath. You see, in all of these things, the creature was never made to be an end unto himself. Indeed, he was created in the image of God to have a relationship with God. There is something happening inside of us at all times, spiritually speaking, and it was all made for a God himself to look upon us and to see into those deep, dark corners of our heart where we ourselves are not even really capable of seeing, yet he still sees it. And when he created us, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, when God created man, he says, let us make man in our image because his intention was from the very first to have people with whom he could have a relationship with. And when he created us, unlike all the other creatures that he created where he said it was good, it was good, it was good. When he created us, he looked upon us and he said, it is very, very good. This was his desire to know us and have a relationship with us, which then begs the question, when we strike one another down, when we perpetrate any kind of an injustice on each other, once again, in blasphemy against the Most High, we reduce that wrongdoing down to a purely horizontal level where all we stop to think about and all we stop to consider is how did this affect that other person? We absolutely must consider how it affects the other person. But we cannot ignore the vertical. It affected that other person. And that other person was not made to be an end unto himself. He was made from the very foundation of the world to know God, to love God, to worship God, and glorify God. Which means any harm, any damage that is done to that person, wrong though it is to him or her, it was also wrong to him. And... Where that individual suffers, the great one on high suffers as well. I want you to turn with me for just a second. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. If you don't have the Bible, be on the screen behind me. But in Genesis chapter 9, this is indeed where the law of capital punishment is given by God. And in Genesis chapter 9, God says to Noah regarding death, regarding murder. He says, and for your lifeblood, this is Genesis, sorry, Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. He says, from every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Notice the reasoning. Not because that was really bad and hurt that other guy. If any man sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The appeal there is that when you commit a crime or an injustice against any other human being, you are committing a crime, you are an affront to the image of God. You're offending him as well as offending the individual you're harming or sinning against. The justification, the basis, the foundation for justice, in this case the capital punishment, is not the harm that was done to that man, but because that man was created in his image. Now you have a crime and you have the punishment. In this case the crime is murder and the punishment is execution. If you do the crime, so to speak, you do the time. And God is the one speaking forth the punishment. And God says for this crime, the harm is such that the payment will be this. And he's saying if you take a person's life, then the payment for taking that person's life, because they're created in the image of God, 
is that he will also be executed. So I want you to hold that in your mind. I was told this frequently by my parents as a child. You do the crime, you do the time. You've heard it too, I'm sure. You do the crime, you do the time. We have here an understanding of proportionality. God is saying, here's the crime, and the appropriate proportionate response to this crime is this punishment. Now, with that in mind, flip over. I want you to go to Luke chapter 17. Go all the way over to Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at the first two verses in Luke 17. And when we get there, what I want you to notice is the correlation between Luke 17 and Genesis chapter 9. In Luke chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Verse 2, it would be better for that man, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. If you do the crime, you do the time. In Genesis chapter 9, God the Father was saying, if you murder someone, the, the time, the punishment for that crime is that you shall also be executed. Notice now how the Son of God describes the real problem here. He says, if you cause someone to sin, if you are a temptation, if you lead someone down the path of wickedness, if you cause them to stumble, the, that's the crime. The time, or the punishment, is that it would be better for you to have already been executed by means of drowning. Did you catch that? He says, temptations are going to come. But woe to the man through whom they come. He says, if any of you leads, and he's talking about children, these are considered the weakest, smallest, most insignificant individuals within society. It was commonly understood in this day and age that if you were to sin against a man and harm a man, you were impacting his whole family, and therefore the penalties and the punishments assigned for hurting a man were far greater than those for hurting a child. Jesus throws all of that to the wayside because he's not looking at it from the perspective of, well, what is going to do the most damage to a family? Again, his focus is on what does this do to Almighty God? And therefore, there's no distinction between a child versus an adult. And what he says is when it comes to harm, we're not talking about physical bodily harm. We're talking about temptations to sin. God has always wanted to look upon our hearts to see those soft, subtle, almost imperceptible motions of our hearts, and he's wanted to see their hearts that honor and glorify him. When we sin, or when we are tempted to sin, and then we begin to entertain thoughts of buying into that temptation and going down that path, God sees all of that, even when we're not even consciously thinking about it, it's just something going on in the back of our mind. He sees all of that. And whereas he created you as something beautiful, which he could look upon and see deep down into the dark crevices and the recesses of your heart, deep down in the places in your soul, which you yourself cannot see, he does not want to see temptation and rebellion. He does not want to see you entertaining sin. And so in the first instance where he says, if you murder someone, you are liable to be executed because that person is created in the image of God. Here Jesus is saying, Woe to the person who is just even leading someone down the path of sin. Church, we are created to always be living in close fellowship and close relationship with our God. We are always created in our hearts to be thinking thoughts and feeling emotions and having all these complex interactions happening on a spiritual level, which he could look at and delight in. And we take that away from him. When we go down the path of sin. Now he looks upon us as sinners who still bear his image. And it is a violation of him at a personal, deep level, an infinite being. It causes him harm. When you have sinned, or when you have tempted others to sin, you've robbed God of his worship. To which he is due. 
I, I often think about that, and my wife asks me, you know, when we're driving, what were you thinking about? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I really have no idea. But I know I was thinking something. And it's true when we gather together as a, as a church to worship. All throughout the week, of course, I want to live in a way that is righteous and glorifying to God. It comes down to how I treat people. It comes down to how I prioritize my time, how I budget my money, how I care for my family. But it also comes down to when I gather with the saints of the Most High to think about Him and to reflect on who He is. Do I feel within my heart these emotions of joy and gratitude that He is God? He looks for that. He looks for what he has done in sending his son Jesus to die for us. It is forensic. It is legal. It is absolutely a point of justification. We understand that God, first and foremost, is impartial. That we've committed crimes and there are due penalties that are assigned to these crimes. And as an impartial judge, he's weighing all of these things. But do you know what else Jesus has done for us on the cross? Not only did he satisfy the debt that we owe, not only did he pay back the penalty which we should pay back, but he took God's wrath. He took it for us. In John chapter 3, don't flip there, just listen. This is the famous passage which says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And a few verses later, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains upon him. Now in this particular passage, what John is saying is that it is obedience to the Son. It is faith in the Son that grants to us the privilege of inheriting eternal life. Which means that when Jesus dies on the cross, we use this big word, propitiation, he's satisfying not only the legal burden that we owe, the debt that we cannot pay, but he is also absorbing all of the wrath of God. And one of the things that Apostle John says is that if we don't believe in Jesus, we don't obey Jesus, we are not absolved from that wrath, but that wrath remains upon us. But if we trust in Christ, Jesus takes that wrath on our behalf, dying on the cross. So that in Christ, God's not angry when he looks at you. He sees his child, and he loves you. And as you walk in obedience with Christ, as you reflect on the goodness of what Jesus has done for you, your heart begins to change. You begin to prioritize things like worshiping the Lord, thinking about the Lord, lifting high your voice and praise the Lord. You begin thinking about how your heart should respond to certain events, how you ought to feel about certain things from a godly perspective. And God looks on all of those things and he, he takes great delight in you being restored to the image in which he initially created you. Being transformed, as it says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, from one degree of glory to the next, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So I have praise. I have good news. Jesus died on the cross to take the anger and to pay your debt. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord, you do not trust in Christ, I urge you to repent of your sins and to believe in Him. If you do, there is no longer any wrath. There is no condemnation. Your debts have been paid. Your sins are forgiven. And God delights to look upon your heart. Amen. A couple of years ago, I was reading through Second Part, First Samuel. And I was reading about King David and Saul. This guy was always out to kill Saul. You know that? Uh, Saul, sorry, Saul was always out to kill David. I misspoke. And David loved Saul. Before Saul, in fact, before Saul ever even knew David as the shepherd warrior, Saul was David's king, and David was loyal to Saul. David's great respect for Saul was one that he would carry with him all the way to the grave, calling Saul my father 
and always referring to him as the Lord's anointed. Eventually, over a period of time, if, you, if you're familiar with the life of David, he became Saul's right-hand man and his top general. And he married Saul's daughter, and of course he's known as ministering in Saul's court, playing his, uh, playing his guitar for him. This wasn't a guitar, but, but uh, ministering to, to Saul. However, Saul became jealous of David and turned against him. And time and again, Saul did evil to David. Eventually, at one point, chasing him out of his kingdom, trying to kill him, suspecting that David's desire was to do him harm. And he made this accusation against David time and time again. But what's fascinating is that David gives two very poignant examples over the course of his life. Two very clear instances in which, by his conduct, he showed that he never meant any harm to Saul. The first time, of course, the first time, of course, Saul was uh, in this cave, and David was hiding in the cave, and Saul didn't know that David was there. And David cut off, he was so close with the knife, David could have struck down Saul in self-defense, because after all, Saul was trying to hunt him down. But he doesn't. He just cuts off a corner of his robe. And eventually Saul leaves the cave, and then David calls out after Saul, and he says, See here, my father? Talking to this man who's trying to kill him. He says, see here my father. And he holds up the garment. He says, I have the corner of your robe. It's here in my hand. And by this fact that I cut off the corner of your robe, yet I did not kill you. You may know and you may see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands against you. Of course, Saul acknowledges it. There seems to be this moment in which the tensions are falling, but then eventually Saul doubles down and continues to try to chase after David to kill him. Which brings us to the second time. David offered up an even more powerful object lesson to Saul and to you and me, that he meant no ill will towards Saul. Saul came out to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph, and he encamped on this hill. And David, of course, saw the camp and spied out the camp where Saul and all his soldiers were uh, camping. And as they're watching these guys camp, David says to his men rather brazenly, he says, hey, here's what I think we should do. I think we should go down into that camp at night. And we should cause a little trouble. And so he makes this suggestion. And out of all the men who are with him, this guy Abishai agrees with him. He says, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's go down to that camp where all of Saul's elite bodyguards and top soldiers are and all of his generals and all of his most ferocious warriors. Let's go down while they're sleeping and let's... Let's create a little trouble. Abishai, he's up for it. And if you know Abishai, you know that of all of David's soldiers, Abishai is the one that is the most loyal, indeed the most bloodthirsty in his rabid loyalty to David. Later on in David's life, when Absalom, his son, overthrows him and kicks him out of Jerusalem, as David is fleeing, it is Abishai, as they're fleeing through the uh, wilderness, this guy comes out to curse David, and Abishai says, you want me to just kill him right now? He's making fun of you. I don't like it. I'll just kill him. I mean, that's the loyalty that this man has to David, where he's just going to strike down people even for minor offenses and infractions. And in fact, in all the time that Saul is chasing after David, it is Abishai, who is one of his top soldiers, who says time and again, look, just give me a knife, turn me loose, let me go in, I'll sneak up on him, and I'll kill him. Time and again, Abishai makes this offer to David. And time and again, David says no. And so Abishai is prone to this sort of impetuousness and this vindictiveness, and he's, he's a really skilled warrior. And this is the guy that David takes with him into Saul's camp. And so you're thinking as you're reading this account, man, trouble's coming for Saul. Like, this has got to be the night that Saul dies. And so, of course, they sneak into the camp and they tiptoe through countless skilled soldiers and then past the inner ring of the special warriors who were assigned the task of keeping Saul safe. And finally, they, they step over the top general of Saul's army, this guy named Abner, who is sleeping right by Saul's side. And of course, it comes like you knew it was going to come. Abishai says to David, Now please, my lord, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of my spear. I promise you, I will not strike twice. But David's not even considering. David says, "Do not destroy him, for who is able to put out against, put out a hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Who could do that?" He says, "No, Abishai, you won't do it." And so instead, they took 
Saul's spear and a water jug that was by his head, and they snuck back out of the camp, climbing the hill opposite where Saul's army was sleeping. And then they call out, just as they did back in the wilderness of Engedi. David calls out, and he addresses his words of rebuke specifically to Abner, the top general that was sleeping beside Saul. And as he rebukes Abner, he says to Abner, aren't you a man? This is from this is from 1 Samuel in verses 15 and 16. He says, aren't you a man? Who is like you in all of Israel? So why haven't you kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people, one of my guys came into your camp tonight in order to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done, Abner, sleeping on the watch. That's not what he says, but that's what he's referring to. This thing that you have done, Abner, is not good. As the Lord lives, Abner, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And at this moment, David holds these things up so that all the camp can see across to the other hill that David, in fact, has these items. Now, Abner, of course, is the greatest of all Saul's soldiers, his top general. And David is scolding Abner like he's a whipped, pathetic puppy because he had failed to take care of Saul. And what is especially cruel and ironic about this is that it was once David who had been assigned the task of keeping Saul safe. And in this moment, David says, there was a man that came into your camp tonight to kill your king. And eventually in that moment of climax, it's revealed it was Abishai. Everybody knows Abishai wants to kill Saul. David had deliberately taken his most bloodthirsty warrior, where there was no question about what he would want to do, and he had taken him into the enemy's camp, past all of the soldiers, right up to Saul himself, and this man, as predicted, says, let me strike him down, and David said, no. And in this moment, as he's rebuking Abner, he is portraying himself as greater than Abner. Abner had failed to keep the king safe, and yet... David had done the job that Abner had failed to do. Even though Saul was trying to kill David, David had still stayed the hand of wrath that was directed against Saul. Oh, First Baptist Church, listen closely. In the same way that David kept the hand of wrath from striking down his enemy, so also the son of David stays the hand of wrath that is directed against you. The last thing you have to see from this text, Paul says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Do you want to know what that wrath looks like? Then look at the man upon whom it was poured out. Look at his suffering. Look at his anguish. The blows that they rained down upon him when they whipped him. The humiliation that they poured out upon him when they spit at him and pulled out his beard. The way they mocked him, making a crown of thorns and driving it into his head. And then, of course, the brutal agony of crucifixion. The wrath of God is revealed in the one who still loves God you and dies for you so that he will take all of the anger and the wrath that you deserved so that you don't have to. It shocks me to this day that there are people who suppress this truth, who ignore it. The Son of God loves you. And he died for you. Why would you not worship him? Why would you not honor him? Why would you not gather to proclaim his name for the greatness of who he is? I cannot understand it. But I see it all around our world. 
And it stuns me when I stop to think of the great love of God coming into our camp, bringing omnipotent power right up to the threshold of our door and saying, it comes for you. But I step in front of it because I love you. You are here today and you have not trusted Jesus. I have no idea what you're waiting for. But if you continue to reject him, the wrath of God comes. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve you to die for me. None of us, none of us did. I cannot understand why they would still make themselves your enemy and walk in disobedience and go their own way. If there are any here, Lord, who are calculating that they can beat you in the long run, in mercy and love, I pray that you would dispel them from that notion. That you would remove that illusion from them. I pray, God, that they would see that in the coming of the Son, true terror waits. True terror comes. What greater wrath must befall those of us who have had it absorbed and yet rejected it in the one that took it for them? God, I pray that you would move us to repentance. I pray that you would move us to a place where we would hope in you and believe in you and worship you for all that you are. The desire of your heart from the moment you created us was to be able to look upon our hearts as we looked at you, to see there in us joy and happiness and to delight in us. God, we have turned our own way. I pray this morning that you would help us to turn prize you for all that you are. We say thank you for taking the wrath that belonged to us. And we pray, God, that you would keep our eyes focused on you and on your son and what he did for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as you are able to continue.